0: Pascual Orozco had had enough. For more than two weeks his army of hard-bitten revolutionaries from northern Mexico's mountains had penned the federal army of Porfirio Diaz in the border town of Ciudad Juarez on the border with the United States. The ex-mule skinner had built his force from scratch and won several battles with the federales after joining the revolution declared by Francisco Madero in November of 1910. Now it was May 1911 and he had the federales teetering on the brink of a catastrophic defeat if Madero would only give the order to attack. But Madero dithered. He was afraid stray fire into Juarez might fly across the river into El Paso and provoke American intervention. He thought that the dictator, Diaz, might resign the presidency he had held for 30 years without further bloodshed, and Diaz, stalling for time and hoping that the revolution would come unraveled, let him believe so. And maybe the noble-hearted and liberal-minded Madero just didn't want to have the blood of so many Mexicans on his hands in what was sure to be a hard fight. So a ceasefire was in place on the perimeter of the city while Madero negotiated with the federal government. Orozco and his fellow revolutionary commander Francisco Villa were out of patience. These two alpha wolves didn't much like each other and they didn't agree on much, but they were in concert on this. It was time to stop talking and get to fighting before the morale of their forces cratered and they started to desert. On May 7th, Orozco and Villa crossed the river into El Paso. Maybe they needed a haircut. Pancho Villa probably wanted an ice cream. On the morning of May 8th, the commanders were shocked, shocked, to hear that firing had broken out on the outskirts of the city. They rushed back to their commands to find them fully engaged with a federal garrison. Madero sent out orders to cease firing at once. Orozco and Villa sent back word, Sorry boss, too late now, the fight's on. The only thing to do was to push on. Madero didn't have any choice. He conceded and ordered a full assault. And then he and his wife crossed the river to the Sheldon Hotel in El Paso to wait the battle out. The revolutionaries pushed into Ciudad Juarez, Orozco's troops moving down from the north and Villas coming up from the south. For two more days, May 9th and 10th, really bitter urban combat reigned, and revolutionary troops dynamited walls and moved house to house to avoid exposure to fire on the streets. Orozco and Villa platooned their forces, rotating them in and out of combat so that the point of the spear would always had fresh men, while the federal garrison of 800 men or so got increasingly exhausted and thirsty. Finally, at the end of the day, on May 10th, General Juan Navarro surrendered the federal garrison of Ciudad Juarez, and the revolution had triumphed. It was a decisive victory, with the main city on the border with the United States taken, the Diaz government could not import arms while the rebels had open smuggling channels. A good proportion of the city's population had aided and abetted the rebels, including firing on the Federals, an indication of that support for the regime had collapsed. In fact, a lot of the, the uh, federales had, uh, had gone over to the rebel side. Diaz under the circumstances, had no real option other than to resign as president and flee into exile. So Madero's revolution was won, and the hero of the hour was this 29-year-old muleteer from San Isidro, Chihuahua, Pascal Orozco, Jr. No one could have recognized it in the moment of triumph, but for Orozco, it was all downhill from here. The victory in the Battle of Ciudad Juarez made Pascal Orozco a national hero, but it also sowed the seeds of his downfall. Almost immediately, Orozco fell out with Madero in a very serious way. Orozco and Villa both expected to see General Navarro executed for war crimes. The general had ordered numerous rebel prisoners bayoneted after battles prior to Juarez, and some of those... uh, who were killed included relatives of Rosco, and for hard men from the deserts and mountains of Chihuahua, that kind of transgression had to be paid for in blood. Madero instead personally escorted Navarro to safety across the border in violation of his own Plan de San Luis, which called for the execution of any federal officer who ordered the execution of revolutionary soldiers. Orozco and Villa were both infuriated, and they burst into a post-battle cabinet meeting led by Madero, and Orozco pulled his pistol on the revolution's leader. Madero's brother Gustavo grappled with Orozco, and, uh, and Francisco Madero made his way outside and climbed up onto the hood of an automobile and made a pretty stirring speech to Orozco's troops. Totally impromptu. He asked them if they wanted him or Orozco to be their president. And as his own soldiers started shouting, Viva Madero! Orozco had no choice but to holster his pistol and accept Madero's handshake. Villa, for his part, was so emotionally stirred by Madero's courage and composure in this crisis. And He was so mortified that he'd been led into betraying his chief that he begged Madero to shoot him, which Madero declined to do. Pancho was, as we will discover in a a later episode, a, a very emotionally volatile man. Madero might have had Villa executed, and and he actually may have ordered it done. But he, if if that was the case, he relented, and. He won Villa's undying loyalty and admiration, not Orozco. Orozco never forgot and never forgave Madero for this incident, and soon other grievances started piling up. Orozco, egged on by his father, came to expect a big financial reward for his revolutionary service and to be named to the post of Minister of War. When no big payday was forthcoming, and the coveted post went to a Dado named Venustiano Carranza, Orozco was bitter, bitter enough to be readily courted and recruited by counter-revolutionary forces that were already coalescing to contain the effects of the Madero Revolution. The revolution was always a personal matter for Pascal. Orozco. While he would always espouse reformist rhetoric, urging land redistribution and the payment of hacienda workers in cash instead of company script, for example, his actions were never really in support of that platform. Even his initial involvement in the revolution came out of a personal family beef. Orozco and his family uh, were in the mule train business, he was good at the work, which required physical toughness, the willingness to fight bandits, and an excellent grasp of logistics and of the geography and terrain of the state of Chihuahua. Operating out of the town of San Isidro, Orozco's family were what they called serranos, people of the Sierra, mountain people, with an independent military heritage that date back to battling Apaches, and, uh, and all the way up to the present, battling bandits. Pascal was a very tough hombre, and a good horseman, and a crack shot. Operating mule trains was the early 20th century Mexican equivalent of running a trucking company. It put the Orozco family squarely in the small but proud Chihuahuan middle class. Well, that middle class was getting squeezed by the crony capitalism of the Porfiriato. The Orozco's didn't really have a beef with the Diaz presidency per se. They didn't care who was in the president's chair. But they did have a beef with the local porfirian Jefe Politico, the political chief of their area, a man named Joaquin Chavez, who was a direct business competitor with the Orozco's. Pascal Orozco was a good hater. If you crossed him, he was going to make you pay. As northern Mexico broke into armed revolt in November 1910 under the banner of Francisco Madero, Orozco jumped aboard the train to dismantle the structure that kept his personal enemy, Chavez, in power. Looking at photographs of Pascal Orozco, in which his grim expression never varies, It's hard to discern any charisma, but men were drawn to this young muleteer's leadership. He had the frontier partisan virtues. He was tough. He was brave. He was skilled at arms. He knew the country and how to use it. He was a badass in a country and a culture that admires badasses. As the revolution started to roll, recruits joined him in droves, well-armed and capable of making a good fight. He immediately scored victories over small federal and rurales garrisons, and by spring, he led the biggest and most capable revolutionary force in the field. Victory always brings recruits. He became Madero's de facto military jefe, and as we've seen, he won the decisive battle, of the war. But the triumphant revolution and Orozco's loyalty to it was very fragile. As Raymond Caballero, Orozco's biographer, notes, Although Madero put a brave face to minimize the attempted coup, in fact its impact was profound. It was a watershed event that changed relationships and created different perceptions of the parties. Madero did not execute Villa as he had ordered, but he paid the profusely apologetic colonel 10,000 pesos and mustered him out of service. From that day, Villa would remain loyal to Madero and an enemy of Orozco's. Orozco and Villa would never work together again or be on the same side. Madero kept Orozco in his service, but at a great price, and others, such as Chihuahua's oligarchy, now saw Orozco as someone who might betray Madero. I've always believed that being treated like a rock star is bad for anyone, including rock stars. In 1911-1912, Pascal Orozco was a rock star, the biggest and baddest hombre in Chihuahua, maybe in all of Mexico. The oligarchs that courted him made sure that every society door was flung open to him, from VIP treatment at casinos to private gun clubs. And all of that was pretty heady stuff for someone we have to remember. was a 29-year-old muleteer. A merchant in Chihuahua observed the effects on Orozco. Power went to Pascalito's head. He began attending fiestas, became a swaggering show-off, a carousing bon vivant who drank and chased women. Francisco Madero, who was formerly elected president in the spring of 1912, made huge mistakes that left him surrounded by enemies. He did not smash the oligarchs. After all, we have to remember that Madero's family were themselves rich hacendados. Those oligarchs would never tolerate even his modest reforms. And the reforms were, in fact, so modest that he left his peasant supporters, who wanted to see the big haciendas broken up and the land redistributed, now he left them frustrated and pissed off. Emiliano Zapata was disillusioned immediately and declared that he would continue fighting the Madero regime just like he had Diaz. Madero actually asked Orozco to fight Zapata and Orozco turned him down flat. Even as he was courted by the oligarchs, Orozco continued to espouse leftist rhetoric and his manifestos lined up with Zapata's. Not his actions, though. In 1912, he declared himself in rebellion against Madero and formed a powerful and capable paramilitary force known as the Colorados for the Red Banner. The Red Banner might have evoked leftist symbology, but Orozco was now the military instrument of the oligarchy of counter-revolutionaries. And his former fellow revolutionary comrades knew it. A revolutionary fighter named Maximo Castillo said, I found out that Orozco was a traitor a coward who had been bought by the rich. Everywhere the wealthy people gave them dances, banquets. He became a society hero. He accepted presents of money from the very robbers who had left the poor without a foot of ground they could call their own. Zapata repudiated Orozco and wrote to him, If Madero betrayed the revolution, you have done the same. You don't offer liberty to the people, you offer chains. You offer the defection of the revolution. What was going on in the head of Pascal Roscoe is an impenetrable historical mystery. He left virtually no writing of his own behind, certainly nothing that gave insight into his thinking. From this point in his career to his death, he continued to stand on a progressive platform around land redistribution and workers' rights, while fighting on behalf of an oligarchy that would never countenance the actual enactment of such a platform. Was he just a cynical player who held out the promise of reform so he could recruit peasants and workers for his colorados? Did he actually believe that if he won the Game of Thrones that he could force reform on his reluctant backers? Did the oligarchs assure him that, sure, yes, we will support reforms after we win? We just don't know. What we do know is that Orozco did take bags of cash from oligarchs, raised his colorados, and began scoring victories that gave him de facto control of the state of Chihuahua in 1912. Working alongside Orozco and heading the administration of his movement, was a man named Gonzalo Enrile, and Enrile proved to be a major problem for the muleteer-turned-general. Orozco should have seen the red flags. I apologize for the pun, but I couldn't resist. Enrile was what we would today call a white-collar criminal, and not an especially sophisticated one. He stole checks from the mail and got caught more than once, doing some time in prison. Now, the revolutionary ranks obviously had plenty of criminals in them, and Pancho Villa was a former bandit himself. One of the first things that a revolutionary force did when they captured a town was empty the jail under the assumption that at least most of those incarcerated were victims of the Porfiriato. That made sense if you were recruiting revolutionary cannon fodder, but why the hell would you put a known crook in charge of your finances? What proved to be even more problematic was Enrile's politics. He was, I would say, pathologically anti-American. Now, Orozco had done plenty of hauling for American mines, and he had a good relations with Americans and American companies, but he allowed Enrile to craft a manifesto that threatened American interests. That's a really dumb move when your guns and ammunition come from the country you're rhetorically attacking. The U.S. clamped down with an arms embargo on Orozco's rebels, and Orozco tried to walk back the manifesto, but the Americans weren't buying it. Under ordinary borderland circumstances, the embargo would have been a headache, but not a fatal one. You could just evade it through well-established smuggling networks that have been in place since forever and, for that matter, are still in place today. In this case, however, the U.S. made the unprecedented move of allowing the Mexican Secret Service to operate on American soil to interdict gun running. Orozco's forces quickly started to run short of ammunition. And General Victoriano Huerta was gunning for him with the assistance of the cavalry of Villa. Huerta was a hard man and a vicious one, a Huichol Indian who had risen in the ranks of the Porphyrian army through competence and ruthlessness, especially in smashing the Maya in the Yucatan Peninsula on behalf of Diaz and plantation oligarchs. Huerta was a high-functioning alcoholic who hid his hangovers behind smoked-lens glasses. He imbibed branding almost constantly, but he never appeared drunk. Huerta would prove himself a really nasty piece of business. Ultimately, it was a big mistake for Madero to keep such porphyrian officers in active service. But in 1912, Huerta served his president effectively. He brought the hammer down on Orozco's Colorado, sweeping them out of Chihuahua and forcing Pascal into exile in the United States. Orozco's rebellion had not succeeded, but it had fatally weakened Madero's already shaky presidency. In February of 1913, Huerta engineered a coup that ousted Madero, who was gunned down in what the authorities claimed was an attempted rescue. Everyone knew that Huerta had him whacked. A mob of pro-Huerta thugs literally tore Madero's brother Gustavo apart in the street, one of them snatching out his glass eye for a trophy. Vinustiano Carranza immediately launched an anti-Huerta movement. And Pancho Villa, who was then in exile in El Paso, which is a story we'll get to in a later episode, crossed the Rio Grande with nine men, which he soon built into a serious revolutionary force. So Huerta's new presidency was already in trouble. He needed capable commanders to battle this revived revolution and he reached out to Pascal Orozco. Despite Huerta having handed him his ass less than a year before, Orozco readily joined up with this new dictator and the Colorados rode again. War ravaged Chihuahua. The Villistas fought hard against the Federals, but their battle with the Colorados was actually a blood feud. Villa's men spared Federal soldiers who surrendered, though they did shoot most of the officers, but any Colorado they captured went to the wall, no reprieves. The Colorados paid in the same coin. Legend has it that the Colorados had a signature, skinning the soles of the feet of their captives. Atrocity stories abound in revolutions, and it's hard to verify whether that really happened. But the Mexican Revolution was such a dark episode, it's, it's hard to write off any atrocity as mere folklore. So this was a very, very nasty revolutionary war. Pancho Villa's army was well armed and supplied and and very combat effective, and through 1913 VIA scored victory after victory in Chihuahua. Some of them quite spectacular, and again, we'll, we'll touch on, on those in a future episode. The Colorados were getting hammered and chased all across the mountains and deserts. Finally, VIA pinned a force of Federals and Orozco's men in the border city, Oonaga, and crushed them. A stream of refugees crossed the border into the United States, including the oligarch Luis Terrazas and his family in a fancy carriage. Among those who fled was Pascal Orozco. So he was in exile again. It took another year for the revolutionaries, who called themselves constitutionalists, to drive Huerta from power. The tough old soldier made his escape and sailed to the UK and then Spain and then to the United States, because he wasn't out of the Game of Thrones just yet. With likely encouragement and probable support from German agents who wanted to agitate Mexico to keep the U.S. occupied and out of the First World War, Huerta plotted to return to Mexico in another bid for power, and the man he turned to as a co-conspirator was Pascal Orozco. Another round of the Mexican Game of Thrones was already underway in 1950. The constitutionalist movement had splintered, with Villa and Zapata breaking from Carranza and his general, Alvaro Obregón, to a degree over ideological issues, but more broadly over simple personal antipathy and distrust. A titanic civil war ensued, in which Villa fell from the pinnacle of his power due to a series of major strategic and tactical mistakes. Carranza was in the ascendancy, but he didn't have control, and Huerta and Orozco were positioned to make a a pretty realistic play if they got back into the game, except that U.S. authorities were all over them. The U.S. very much wanted stability in Mexico, and they were willing to support Carranza, even though he was pretty ardently anti-American, as long as he created stability. So they weren't about to tolerate revolutionary, further revolutionary agitation or counter-revolutionary agitation coming from American soil to destabilize Mexico. So the U.S. authorities had their eye on Huerta right from the time that he landed in New York and by the time he was in Texas. They arrested him and Orozco for violating U.S. neutrality laws, and they were detained in El Paso and put under house arrest. Orozco escaped and went on the lamb, which landed Huerta in the clink, and then later in military custody at Fort Bliss. But Orozco was on the run. That run ended in a box canyon in the wonderfully named High Lonesome Mountains in Culbertson County, Texas. The Texas Historical Association recounts the end game. For almost two months, Orozco eluded the American authorities. On the morning of August 29, 1915, he and four companions, reportedly en route to a rendezvous with supporters at Bosque Bonito in Mexico, rode up to the headquarters of the Dick Love Ranch near Sierra Blanca in Hudspeth County. They ordered the cook to prepare a meal and shoe their horses, but their breakfast was interrupted when they saw Love and two of his men driving up in an automobile. The Mexicans fled on stolen horses with Love and his men in pursuit. That night, a posse of some 15 men, including federal marshals, deputy sheriffs, and troops of the 13th Cavalry, was organized to pursue them. On the afternoon of August 30th, the posse caught up to them in the Van Horn Mountains, eight miles south of Lobo, and shot them to death from the rims of the Green River Canyon. Only then, according to their official report, did the members of the posse realize that their quarry had not been common bandits. That's the official story. A Rose Coast biographer, Raymond Caballero, makes a well-sourced argument that a deadly gunman named Dave Allison, actually arrived at the Box box Canyon before the rest of the posse, caught Orozco and his men napping, and shot them all to death. One man briefly escaped, and it seems that Allison caught and executed him with a pistol shot to the head. The killing or the lynching of Pascal Orozco was controversial at the time, and it remains so today. Whatever story you go with, it was a sordid end to a, a sordid revolutionary career. Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa are icons of Mexican culture. Had Pascal Orozco taken a bullet in 1911, he might be an icon too. But instead, he played the Mexican Game of Thrones and he played it dirty. Villa and Zapata, especially Zapata, remain true to their revolutionary principles. Villa is hated to this day in some quarters, including a friend of mine whose family was terrorized by Villistas in Chihuahua and Durango, but nobody accuses him of being a traitor to the revolution. The name of traitor is the lasting historical brand that will always follow Pascal Orozco. In the next episode of the Frontier Partisan podcast series, The Mexican Game of Thrones, we will take on the life and legend of Pancho Villa, who's probably the most recognizable figure of the Mexican Revolution, especially to Americans to this day. I want to thank our Patreon page patrons who make the Frontier Partisans podcast possible. That's Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buchholz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew, Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. If you're uh, listening to the podcast and would like to throw down a few clues to help keep things going, the Patreon page link is in the show notes. So, in short order, we'll saddle up to Chase Poncho Villa and I'll see you down the trail.